0: Hello and welcome to the Science Chambers Podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is a special episode, it's not one of our normal Sunday uh, Q&A shows. This is a separate live stream we recorded last week. It's uh, a version of a panel show that we're meant to be touring around to lots of festivals uh, this summer to uh, the RI Summer Festival and Latitude and Cheltenham and Blue Dot and all sorts of other places. Uh, it's called Teenage Student Neuro Hurdles. It's a panel discussion about teenage mental health factors with Dr. Dean Burnett, Dr. Susie Gage and Professor Pete Etchells and the live stream was chaired by Dr. Suze Kundu. So you can watch it on our YouTube channel or we also thought we would make it available here on the Science Shambles podcast. And remember you can support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. If you head there and subscribe, uh, not only do you get lots of goodies, extra shows, bonus live streams and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that's That support is what enables us to keep making these podcasts and the live streams and everything else. Uh, while we can't be out doing live shows like we normally would be. And check out all the other great science and culture content we've got going on at CosmicShambles.com. There's the new uh, exclusive documentary series we made with the European Space Agency with Helen Chersky and Ginny Smith and Tim Peake and others. Lots of other live streams, blogs, podcasts and plenty of things to keep you occupied. So I hope you enjoy this episode. (laughs)
1: And welcome to Teenage Student Neuro Hurdles, a discussion about teenage mental health. I'm Dr. Suze Kundu, your chair for today's panel session, and I'm joined by some of the best and most engaging neuroscientists in the land. The Cosmic Shambles Network was supposed to be presenting this event live at lots of different festivals this summer, including the Cheltenham Science Festival, Blue Dot, um, the Royal Institution Summer Festival and many others. But obviously all those plans were scuppered by COVID-19. So we thought we'd do a special live stream of the event instead. The Shambles team chose this week to do it, as it's the very week that this panel and loads of other exciting Cosmic Shambles events were supposed to be taking place in our favorite field in Suffolk for the lovely Latitude Festival. If you want to recreate that experience, grab a warm beer at your peril. A few other Shambles things to mention before I introduce our panel. live streams like this and all the other podcasts and documentaries and other content at Cosmic Shambles are made possible by your support. If you'd like to subscribe to Cosmic Shambles on Patreon, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Cosmic Shambles. As a supporter, you'll also get access to loads of exclusive shows and bonus bits and pieces for signing up as well. On the channel tomorrow night, you'll be able to see the next episode of Genetics Shambles presented in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Center for Evolution, hosted by Robin Ince. Tomorrow night's episode is a rough guide to the human genome, and Robin will be joined by Dr. Adam Rutherford, Sarah Teichman, and Professor Gil McVeigh. Now, on to tonight's show, I'm thrilled to be joined by three of the best neuroscientists and communicators of science, who I also have the privilege of having known for many years now as friends. It's Dr. Dean Bernage, and the Og- titled Professor Pete Etchells. And in all likelihood, probably one of our many feline family members at some point during this chat. So a quick intro of all of our guests. Um, Dr. Dean Burnett is a neuroscientist, honorary research associate at Cardiff Psychology School, a visiting industry fellow at Birmingham City University and a bestselling author. His latest book is called Why Your Parents Are Driving You Up the Wall and What to Do About It. He also hosts the Brain Yapping and Smart Welsh People podcasts on the Cosmic Shambles Network. Dr Susie Gage is a senior lecturer in psychology and epidemiology at the University of Liverpool, where she investigates associations between recreational drug use and mental health. Her first book, Say Why to Drugs, was released earlier this year, and it's based on her award-winning podcast of the same name. Professor Pete Etchels is a professor of psychology and science communication at the University of Bath, where his research focuses on understanding the short and long-term behavioral effects of playing video games. His first book, Lost in a Good Game, Why We Play Video Games and What They Can Do for Us, was released last year. All of our panelists have their own blogs as part of the Cosmic Shambles Network, which you can check out at cosmicshambles.com forward slash blogs. And quite frankly, all of them make me feel exceptionally lazy with all the brilliant things that they do. Dean, Susie, Pete, welcome. How are you all doing? And where are you all? Dean, let's kick off with you.
2: Um, Currently okay. at An acceptable standard, which I'll I'll, I'll take that. Um, I'm currently in my outside office, my cabin, uh, or my global headquarters, however you want to look at it. Basically a wooden box in my garden. Um, I've got a fridge, so that's all I really need, and an internet connection. So and I potentially I'm in command of my own domain here. But yes, um, you, may hear, you may hear noises at some point. It's animals outside causing chaos and uh, you know, causing a lot of echoes. And people like, before I put the bookshelves up, people thought I was always broadcasting from a sauna. It was a nice uh, nice look. I thought that might have been fun, but ne- never got around to it.
1: Yeah, I I was like a vibe as well. (laughs) Great to see you, Dean. Um, Pete, where are you today? Um, Pete, where are you today?
2: I'm in my study,
3: which is a really fancy term for the spare room that we (laughs) turned into a study, um, probably about two metres away from... a a sleeping one-year-old so if I go really quiet at some point (laughs) it's because I'm terrified that I'm going to have a terrible night's sleep uh it's not because I've got nervous or anything like that but yeah no I'm good um other than you know chasing a a small child and dog and two cats around you know it keeps me busy for most of the day try and fit in a bit of work every now and again um yeah I play a few video games when I can
1: and Susie where are you joining us from today Susie's on a teeny tiny bit robotic there but I am enjoying the plants in the background and I'm just going to point out everybody has their their books strategically placed behind them Um, so hopefully Susie's connection will sort itself out in the meantime now I'm going to get the big questions out of the way. First of all, Dean, are we going to see Pickle the Cat causing trouble tonight?
2: Um, um, I can't promise you won't uh, because that's not how cats work, is it? You can't actually schedule their behaviour. He's not in my room right now and the door's locked. So it seems unlikely, but it hasn't stopped him before. You may yeah, hear a massive thud. So. One, you may hear yeah. a massive thud, which is at one point was him finding a moth and attacking it as it was stuck to my window. So, well, that was fun. Yes, could happen. Could
1: easily happen. Yeah. Pickle can definitely break into your sword. And <laughs> yes. sword. And no has done. problem yes. at all. <laughs> yeah, I think we we may see pickle. We may see Bellatrix and Faraday at some point here, and of course, Pete, you've got your zoo of children and, <laughs> and animals. <as> well. <laughs> if we see Susie and Iggy as well, that'll be that'll be a full house, I reckon. And um, so let's gets on with the conversation um the the blurb for this talk and I'm going to kind of read it out because I think it's a really beautiful intro into this chat young people are often labeled as challenging and difficult with the blame laid at the feet of everything from, from drugs to video games to oversleeping and even bad parenting so is there any truth in these generalizations ages just misunderstood. So I'm going to talk about some of the biggest factors with you all that contribute to teenage mental health and dive into the perception or perhaps the misconception versus the scientifically underpinned reality of these topics. And we're going to kick off with a big one here with Dean and parenting. So your book touches on one of the aforementioned aspects of teenage mental health. Parenting is, let's face it, a pretty activity. the biggest ways that the behavior of parents and their actions can have an impact whether that's positive or negative on teenagers
2: well it's <laughs> obviously like you say it's such a broad uh, subject and it's such a fundamental one <clears throat> the um it, you know, it starts from day one obviously your, your parents are your parents uh, since you're born that's kind of how biology works and you know they raise you and again it doesn't have to be your biological parents whether it's your raised by grandparents or you know adopted parents your, your primary adult caregiver is essentially what we're talking about because obviously families come in all shapes and sizes but you know, when you're a small child you will learn most of the world most of what you learn about the world from your parents they provide your go-to example they provide your sense of security you spend your most of the time with them they like they give you your dna so they shape you in very fundamental ways and that will just keep happening uh, until you're a teenager and it still happens then when you're a teenager that's when you uh, and sort of we start becoming an independent uh human rather than sort of um not subservient that's the wrong word but someone who cares for the, you know so it of depends on their parents um for you know it's, 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 it's uh, their parents are not so much in control you want to be an individual at this point and that's when you know clashes can occur that's when stresses can happen because parents you know especially if you're the older sibling you know they've never raised a teenager before it's all new to them as well and you're both finding your feet in this way and there's lots of research about this like certain types of parenting can have positive and negative outcomes like it's far too much to uh, you know to go into here but um I think a lot of the research has said or at least some studies have said that in order to maintain the sort of the most uh, positive or the most healthy relationship between teenagers and parents, it needs to be something like an ongoing renegotiation of the relationship. You have to be able to say, well, like, you want to do this now, well, I'll allow that and this, that and the other. And it's, it's both sides have to acknowledge that things are changing, uh, but also there are limits to this. So, yeah, there are so many ways in which parents can impact on a teenager's mental health and general well-being, um, But it's important to recognize that everyone's finding their way through this. Everyone's finding their feet and it's, it's kind of any situation for for everyone involved. So you know, it's it's a, a two way street, and also it's a it would hopefully be a joint process in finding out exactly what you should be doing, why and how, and what works for you.
1: Yeah, it's such a it's such a finding because, because, because it, is, it is one of the biggest jobs in the world. I mean, nobody hmm. ever teaches anybody how to become a parent there's no real training manual for that but there is a lot of kind of you know the, the kind of anecdotes that turn into sort of scientific fact that that come from how people parent so what what are kind of the the big you know the major kind of are there any particular milestones or things or particular kind of Incidents growing up, you know, rites of passage that are are really kind of formative for kids in particular. What are the kind of biggest factors that shape this relationship, and potentially have an impact on this this idea of mental health?
2: Well, it's 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 sort of um, a lot of studies I've seen. It's age four seems to be a particularly key one in terms of you know stuff that happens to you. Your development at age four will have a bigger impact on how your development proceeds later in life. So you know, when you're age four, that's when things get set if you want to look for it different I mean the way I've described it is until age four it's sort of like you know in terms of brain development and um, well-being you're packing the car it's a lot of work but, you know you're putting things in the boot arranging the space and stuff and age four that's when you set off like you, know, you can't go back now and if you've forgotten something then you're not doomed but you know it's not great but it's it's kind of hard to sort of, you know, on any one particular factor, but it's, it's important to recognize that when you're a teenager, there will be stress uh, in terms of dealing with your parents and uh, there will be, you know, butting heads, there will be conflict. And it'll just be all like a strain on the existing relationship because you're becoming a different person. Your, your development when you're a teenager is actually quite fundamental your body and brain are being overhauled at the hormonal level at the physical level the connections in your brain are being rewired to make you more adept for an adult existence and that causes changes and upset and drama and, and things and you will want to you know your parents go from being a source of you know security caregivers providers to being more like you know, wardens or like barriers to what you want to do because you know, they have older brains they have less flexible brains they're not quite they don't change as quickly as um <clears throat> As they do, so it's um, so you know it can conflict can arise from from that aspect too, and it's you know it's important to be aware that this is a thing. I mean, it's not even a human thing. Any social species with ha- which has an adolescent stage, like chimps and rats, they show a similar thing. The adolescents mm-hmm. become you know wander further and further away from the family group and explore on their own. That's that's a big thing. Like you have to be able to let them do that because it's it's an it's an evolved mechanism to ensure our species spreads further and wide and becomes more robust and mixes and things. And yeah, so there's so many milestones, but to point point down to one one thing would be tricky. But it's important to recognize this is normal. You know, the whole you know, classic clashing of teen vs versus, versus parents. That's a normal part. We've evolved to do that, and it's only like the 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 systems of the wider world which have uh, led to this sort of. You know the current sort of confusion. So, yeah, so lots of milestones, lots of things. and, yeah, it, but it's okay. It, it's it's what will happen. It'll always happen because that's how we've evolved,
1: so it's not such a bad thing. These kind of the you know it's teenage t- teenage tantrums and things really they're normal. they're part of it, and it's just everyone establishing. I mean, I hate to use this term again, but the new normal of that time as people grow and develop. You have written in the past about some of the really big things that do play a huge part on teenage mental health. And I wanted to maybe talk about some of that. You've written an article about GCSEs and the impact that they have played on teenagers. Now, of course, we're in this strange situation this year when these kids have worked their butts off to, to get to this point where they're kind of ready to to sit those exams what what kind of impact do you think you know first off sitting those GCSEs what's the kind of the mental strain on a teenager and how do you think they might be impacted this year
2: it is it's, it's one it's, it's, because like I've always said that you know when you understand how, uh, how the brain is being changed during adolescence it's it's a lot to take in, obviously. Adolescents genuinely need more sleep at different times because of all these underlying brain uh, changes that are occurring as part of the natural course of development. So they need more sleep and they need to sleep later because that's just sort of biology. But they don't get to because schools start when they start and they have to go. So they don't have a choice in the matter. And also parents don't have the same sleep cycles and then they may well end up thinking that you have to you know, you know they have to sort of go. wake up you're missing the best part of the day and the teens are going nah, and that's, that's a valid reaction because they're not getting the sleep they need and it's really um you know it, it's problematic it causes a lot you know not enough sleep means you, you lose focus you lose the ability to remember things you can't um you can't you know retain information better you're more irritable you can't regulate your moods as well that's a constant default state of being for teenagers because of what we make them do so that's actually the worst possible time to make them retain loads and loads of uh, abstract information and then remember it uh, on command uh, for, you know, exams which will define the rest of their lives. It's a really big ask to ask for someone in this situation. So the stress of it alone will be quite substantial. And stress is a big underlying cause of a lot of mental health problems, particularly things like depression and anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
2: yes, you will see you know, spikes in that sort of thing. And, you know, it, teenagers do do it and they get, they get through it. And it's very impressive. So regards to them being... Um, you know, cancelled this year or like being rescheduled for much later on, you can see that being a mixed blessing. You don't want to waste your effort. You know, that's something we're instinctively hardwired to dislike, wasted effort. But I don't think any, anybody really enjoys an exam. It's like, you know, if you told kids, teenagers tomorrow, we're not doing exams anymore, we're doing something else entirely. And a few of them go, oh, I love exams because nobody does. It's just, you was know, a part of the way we made to do. So I don't think it'll be necessarily a case of, you know, people will miss the exams. If anything, it'll be less of a stress. But then it'll bring in more uncertainty about what's going to happen and how you're going to progress and how you're going to you know achieve what you need to achieve to you know, make your way in later in life. And that'll all bring in more stress as a result, because the brain doesn't like uncertainty either. So it's a very you know, it's hard to say right now, but I can see one stress being reduced, another stress being increased. And mm-hmm. it depends on how much you know, if they count each other out, if one outweighs the other, that's when we'll see what'll really happen in the longer term.
1: Sure. And that's just one of the, the, the kind of the kind of major stress points that are put on teenagers at the moment. I mean, we haven't even touched on the aspect of, of the culture of being a teenager, of discovering different things, all these kind of interesting hobbies that they may have. One of the things that I'm kind of keen to talk about, actually moving on to Susie, is of course the impact that you know drugs and and other kind of factors may have on, on kids. So I, I will admit I'm quite out of my depth here in asking you about drugs. I've only ever dabbled in caffeine and alcohol and probably far too much chocolate. But even these seemingly harmless drugs can still have quite an impact on mental health. Um, I guess my first question is, is it quite frustrating when people dismiss these kind of legal drugs when they could actually have a big impact on people's health? Yeah, absolutely.
4: I hope you guys can hear me now. I've had like three or four different laptops that I've been trying in the last 10 minutes while Dean's been talking. So fingers crossed, this is going to work now. But yeah, completely exactly what you say that people think, oh, alcohol's not a drug. It's a drink, like Chris Morris famously said. Um, but really, alcohol is sort of one of the most wide-ranging or like has the most wide influence in the brain in terms of its effect. It has an effect on almost every neurotransmitter in the brain. Obviously, it has a huge physical health impact as well. Um, Things like the liver and the circulatory system, you know, all kinds of things. Alcohol is definitely not a sort of harmless substance. Um, And it's one that we've got so many myths and misconceptions about. But when we're thinking about teenagers, actually... The vast majority of teenagers won't be doing anything other than drinking maybe cigarettes or e-cigarettes as they get a bit older, potentially sort of cannabis or nitrous oxide these days. Maybe, maybe. But um, but actually the vast majority of teenagers won't be sort of having this reckless time that they sort of get this label put on them and actually substance use. It does happen, absolutely. And teenagers do have this kind of proclivity to experiment and take risks and sort of um, push boundaries and that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that that all teenagers are sort of uh, behind the bike sheds getting real high all the time. It's absolutely not the case at all. And yeah, I think the legal drugs in a way are the most interesting ones.
1: I mean, alcohol is so so widely widely available, you know, and and as you say, it can lead to to so many different things. And it's kind of interesting, actually, I I was wondering whether I could ask you um, to to tell us a little bit more about maybe how habits have changed for teenagers, you wrote a a journal article with Dr. Pravita Patale, um, which discusses the changes in mental health and other behaviours over time of teenagers. So uh, as a little kind of data quote between 2005 and 2015 and your study showed that mental health issues increased that that trying smoking or the heavy drinking kind of decreased can you tell us a little bit more about the study uh, and some of those results that you discovered
4: yeah, so we were looking in sort of um, UK-based 14-year-olds, so people who were 14 in 2005, and then another group of people who were 14 in 2015, and using two different cohort studies. So one of them is the ALSPAC Children of the 90s study that's based in Bristol, and another one is the Millennium Cohort Study, which is a nationwide study so we did a bit of kind of matching some of the questions that they were asked were identical which was really handy because obviously that you could just compare them directly but we were also interested in things like sleep and it was measured in slightly different ways in the different cohort so we spent a while kind of harmonizing all of our variables and actually applying some um matching or balancing so that the um local sample was similarly representative as the national sample so that we can actually make some comparisons rather than just saying well the difference is actually just that they're a different group of young people and yeah we found some really interesting things so the reason we started the project is because there have been lots of reports that sort of young people were experiencing a mental health crisis at the moment and uh, we wanted to see well just what what does the evidence actually look like and I think calling it a mental health crisis is certainly overblown but we did find that things like um the number of depressive symptoms that young people were reporting or the likelihood of self-reported um self-harm behaviors and that kind of thing had increased over that 10-year period in in uk teenagers and yeah as you say interestingly things like uh trying different substances had gone down and um things like uh, doing Uh, vandalism or graffiti or that kind of thing, a lot of those had gone down as well. Young people were also reporting sleeping less, so going to bed later and waking up earlier, um, being more likely to be um, overweight or obese and um, being more um, perceiving themselves more as overweight and obese as well. Mm -hmm. And so It's really, really interesting, these changes in prevalence, but actually, what do they really tell us? What do we know about? Do we know much about why this is happening? So that's what we're working on at the moment. Myself and Pravitha, we're trying to explore a bit more about how the association between these things changed as well. Because one of the things I'm interested in is what do we know about um, what causes what? So does does using a recreational drug, a psychoactive substance, cause an increase in the risk of poor mental health? or are people who experience poor mental health more likely to turn to use a substance? So given we think what these things might cause the other one, the fact that one of them's going up and the other one's going down, that suggests something a bit more complicated is going on. So we're trying to kind of unpick this at the moment. And what it seems like is that though these these substance use behaviours in particular are becoming less common, the extreme end are the people who are really experiencing the poor mental health. So it might be that the sort of the more kind of casual experimental use of these substances is falling away. But the people who are potentially having maladaptive relationships with these substances, that's not necessarily getting lower. It might even be increasing. We still need to explore it a bit more. But potentially that's quite worrying that sort of the more problematic behaviours aren't going away. It's the sort of less problematic ones that are and it's so yeah. that everyone's being pushed to the extreme
1: of course. of course yeah I think um we kind of we live in this time where teenagers I I, I think kind of unfortunately get blamed or accused for for lots of different behaviors for, for lots of the things that we we see is supposedly you know down to the youth of today and it all does seem quite unfair you know we all had our time and I kind of I loved reading Pete's book um and I, I related to it quite strongly because actually, from a, a personal perspective, I love video games. I absolutely love them. Um, so I have kind of spent many uh, a, a joyful summer of my youth kind of bouncing about Super Mario World dressed as a plumber astride a bright green Yoshi. <laughs> um, people, Pete, are really concerned about teenagers playing video games this is one of the many things that they are blamed for you know alongside some of the things that, that Susie was mentioning earlier which kind of seems a, a bit of a shame so so why are people so concerned about video games and and you know what, what is it about it is it the violent content do you think that they can influence young minds or, or is it something else something else
3: well i think i think the first thing to say is that whatever you do will have an effect on your brain right and, and there's been a lot of scaremongering around um video games and technology generally over the past 10 years or so using that as a line that you know if you if you play video games it changes your brain and that's a bad thing uh, and it's not if if our brains didn't change we we would die basically uh, and <laughs> certainly we'd be able to to learn anything so it's the, the, the interesting thing is not how do we cha- uh, not whether we change it's how do we change the, the story around video games research is a really complicated one. In many ways, and it's quite hard being a video games researcher because you know you say that to people and they go, "All right, you're playing on your Xbox in your lab," (laughs) which I am, but it's for science. So um, there's this sort of perception that it's not a proper science, really. But at the same time, a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, video games—they're melting kids' brains, or they're the worst thing in the world." So there's a kind of disconnect between those two feelings, and I think it perhaps in part comes from the fact that. Um, a lot of people who, who don't play video games might not quite understand how they work or um, what you're actually doing in those, in those video game worlds. And it's understandable, in a way, in that if you look at other forms of entertainment um, and other art forms, there's a really low barrier to entry, right? So if you have never seen a movie before, um, and the first movie that you go and see is rubbish, then all you need to do is just sit there while somebody else uh, puts another DVD on and you can try another one. You can keep trying until you maybe find something that you like, uh, like Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the greatest movie ever. Um, With video games, it's different because if you suddenly decide that you, having never played video games before, want to um, and you buy a PlayStation 4, get it out of the box, got to figure out how to plug it into the TV and how the controllers work, charge everything up, uh, and you finally do all of that and you turn it on, it's got to connect to the Wi Fi. So then you've got to figure out where your Wi Fi uh, password is, because nobody ever remembers those. Um, and then it connects. And then the first thing that happens is it downloads a, an update. And it will take like four hours to do that, or <laughs> 27 on my Wi Fi connection. Okay. Um, and it kind of looks like the thing's broken, right? And it finally updates. And that's the point that you can actually put the game in and start playing something. Put the game in, another, another download update. So you've got to wait for that. And that's when you actually get to the point where you start playing the game, that's not the experience in and of itself because there's a learning curve to go through and there's a storyline to play through. And people play, I mean, obviously people play different games for for different reasons, but people sometimes play the same game for for lots of different reasons. And and your kind of journey through a video game can differ um, immensely. Um, as you get better at it, as you start to understand the mechanics a little bit more, um, as you start to make friends in the game. Um, and all of those sorts of things mean that there's a really high barrier to entry uh, for for understanding really what, what video games are. So if you don't play them and um, you don't really have that sort of understanding and you watch somebody playing a video game, it's kind of like a. It's a really horrible experience. Like it looks like somebody's like really glued to their screens. Uh, like you can literally see brain juices trickling out of their ears. Is is, is what it seems like, um, but that's very different to what's actually going on. So it's that disconnect. I think um, everybody's got an opinion about video games um, because, in part, I think they're sort of seen as this lower form of entertainment Um, and i think that drives a lot of the the kind of public interest and the news cycle interest in video game effects and it also drives this very um binary way of thinking about whether they're all good or all bad
1: Mm. it's interesting you talked about people watching people play video games but that is actually a huge entertainment thing for for a lot of kids these days as well. I don't understand Twitch. I'm too old for that business, but I hear about it from the youth. Um, Sounds sounds fun. Um, So I'm wondering then, with the video game aspect of it, it, it kind of goes synonymously with the whole worry about people being glued to screen devices you know everybody's i mean not just teenagers everybody is kind of glued to their phones it's a little bit like when television i suppose first became popular and everybody was worried about everyone being glued to the the box we've moved on from that and we've relabeled it binge watching you know if we are genuinely glued to the tv and we can plow through kind of box sets and things but do you do you think that screens are, are somewhat vilified for no reason. Because I was chatting to um, probably a friend of all of ours, uh, Dr. Sophie Meekings, who's another brilliant neuroscientist herself, and she suffers from hearing loss. And she was telling me last night that MSN Messenger saved her you know, in in her younger years, it enabled her to to connect with people and contact people and to communicate with them. And there's also stories about people using their camera phones to, to zoom into menus and things. So, you know, do you think we unfairly kind of pigeonhole all screen time into one bucket of, oh, no, that's absolutely awful? Or should we be a little bit more understanding, you know, for... That screen time being quite an asset for those perhaps suffering from sight loss or hearing loss or people that are neurodiverse, I wondered whether you can maybe tell us a little bit about your your thoughts on screen time. Thoughts on screen time?
3: Yeah, I, I think I think absolutely that we often kind of apply our own viewpoint on our opinions of people. We always apply our own viewpoint on our own opinions of things. But uh, you know, thinking about how. Various forms of technology might affect people who are in different situations to us. Doesn't come easily unless you have that sort of direct uh, experience of it. Um, I so one f- first thing to say is that screen time basically is a meaningless concept. Um, it sounds enticing from a scientific point of view in that it's a number that you can get between one and twenty-four hours of using screens per day that you can do some stats with, but it doesn't tell you anything meaningful. It doesn't tell you what. That person was doing, why they were doing it, how they were doing it, who they were doing it with, and those are the interesting questions around the effects that screens can have on us. I think that screens were vilified up until about February this year <laughs> and then everybody was put in the situation where they had to rely on them to connect with each other and I think that perhaps one of the positives if there are any uh, to, to come out of it at all of this entire mess that we're in is that people have started to appreciate this conversation that we've got around screens needs to mature because in many ways they've saved our ability to socialize with each other. Uh, A case in point is this very thing that we're doing now. Um, Just before uh, the lockdown was implemented, my my grandmother was um, on the the verge of being diagnosed with dementia and she got taken into hospital. Um, She lives up in Manchester, it's about five hours um, in the car for us. So we don't get to see her that often. Um, and um, eventually she 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 got a place in a care home. And, you know, I, I'd speak to her every day on the, not every day, sorry, every other day on the phone when she was at home. But now, because she didn't have the internet, now in the care home, they do have the internet and I can video call her. And when she can actually see me, I can see her, she can see her great-granddaughter. And that's an incredibly wonderful thing that technology allows us to have and and, and to do mm-hmm. that's not to say that it's all good or all bad um there's a, when you're talking about something as complex as human behavior and human socializing and something as complex as the medium through which we do that there's always going to be different stories um and and and, and some good things and some bad things where before February time, say, I think there was a tendency for people to see them as a very negative thing. Screen time is always bad, particularly for teenagers. And then there are a few people who said, hang on a second, here's all the good things that you can do on screens. I think people are starting to appreciate that complexity a little bit
1: more now. So this pandemic, I suppose, thrown up some really... Interesting curveballs for all of your areas of research. So I want to dive into that in just a moment. Just wanted to add, if you do have any questions for our panelists, please do share them um, in the chat, and I will get to ask them on your behalf. So while we're hopefully hearing from our awesome audience, Pete, I just wanted to pick up on one thing you talked about—the um, kind of the the aspects of using tech and screen time for for communications. So that is a, a big aspect of it. What about Teenagers using games and managing to socialise with people through this unprecedented—if you had unprecedented—drink, um, this <laughs> unprecedented time that, that we're going through at the moment.
3: So uh, this this kind of goes this this kind of goes back to that that point you were making around how people view video games, right? And I think Fortnite's a really good example of this mm-hmm. at the minute. I think a lot of kids basically use Fortnite as a glorified form of social media, or oh. well, they did before. Um, the pandemic started. The lockdown started. Uh, quarantine, if anybody's got that. Um, it looks as though it's this really horrible, violent game where you're thrown onto an island with 100 other people and you've got to be the last person surviving, which you know is sort of my worst nightmare. Um, and you can play it that way if you want to, but a lot of the time people just get on there so that they can form a group with their friends and catch up after school. Um, and they might play a few games, or they might go into creative mode and start building forts and stuff and pushing each other off. Um, but it's, it's not, and, and, and this is why it's difficult to do research in this area as well, because when you start to appreciate how something as seemingly simple as Fortnite is actually lots of different things. Yes, it's a a shooting game, um, but it's also a socializing game. It's also a collaborative building game as well. How do you pigeonhole it in research to try and understand what the effects of that game are? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think a lot of researchers have been saying this for a long time. I think more researchers are now starting to realize this with horror that actually you can't simplify how you categorize these sorts of games in order to understand their effects. Mm -hmm
1: well um so staying on the topic of covid um susie and dean i know that you've both created a bunch of resources to hopefully help people because we don't know necessarily what the impact of this pandemic is going to have on people's mental health but we're all in very different situations at the moment we're all cooped up we're not able to see the people that we love and it's a terrifying thing that is completely out of our control. So what can people be doing to kind of check in on their mental health? And and can you tell us a bit about some of the awesome resources that you've actually been kind of creating and co-creating? Susie, first. can I come to you? Yeah, so when when um lockdown first
4: started, I really struggled, partly because I literally found out I was pregnant two weeks before. And so it was all really, really overwhelming. But also um I felt like everyone wanted to hear from epidemiologists, but I'm not the right kind of epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious diseases epidemiologist. And so like so many people were being accused of being armchair epidemiologists. And I was like, I am an epidemiologist, but I'm not qualified to talk about this. And I felt really like a little bit impotent. I didn't really know what to do that would be useful. and I teach on the medical degree at at Liverpool uni and one of the things that um our students quite a lot of our students our medical students and our nursing students were fast-tracked into the NHS so before they actually qualified they were sort of on Covid wards helping well not just helping like doing amazing amazing things and we just thought what can we do to support them and um my colleague Helen, Dr. Helen West, came up with the idea of making a podcast for these students talking about mental health and well-being. So we started the Coping with COVID podcast and it's all, each episode's about 15 minutes long and it's evidence-based advice for how to deal with things like if you're worried about your sleep for example um we did an episode about alcohol if you're worried that you're drinking too much during the pandemic which I think lots of us found that we were um (laughs) not me obviously (laughs) because I'm not allowed at the moment but um uh but yeah and And things like that but also the kind of transition shock of being going from being a student to suddenly being having more responsibilities and as well as that we also were interviewing some of the students themselves and those conversations are incredibly powerful actually if you're wondering what it's like to be in the NHS at the moment I would really recommend listening to what some of those nursing and medical students and what some of them have given up to do this sort of not being able to go and see their families and that kind of thing one of them genuinely when i was editing one together i cried because this girl was talking about missing her 21st birthday missing being with her family because she was um she decided to stay in liverpool and work in the hospital and it just made me think about when i was that age and coming out of either coming out of school or coming out of university their life this should be sort of opening up ahead of them and all they're really seeing is kind of the four walls that they're in and i know it's not for long and i know it's will pass. but when you're young time feels different to how it does when you're older and i i can imagine that it was just incredibly tough so it felt really good to be able to do something kind of practical and useful and use my skills in a in a productive way so yeah so that's kind of what i've been doing with my lockdown so far
1: Oh, it's amazing! Oh, it's amazing, because um, I suppose it's not just the going into lockdown and this weird situation that we don't know when it's going to end. It's also coming out of it. I mean, I know my behaviours have definitely, definitely changed, and I, I mean, I love you all know I love people, um, but I'm kind of running away from them, screaming if I see any within my vicinity at the moment, and that's very strange. Um, Dean, you've also created a bunch of resources that are actually available on the Shambles Network, aren't they? Can mm. you tell us a bit about those? <coughs> yeah,
2: um, <coughs> yeah um, I sort of thought I'd uh, try and apply my uh, existing knowledge to the situation to see if it'd be helpful to anyone. I um, started a few uh, blogs called, um, was it the Pandemic Brain, because the something brain is my default way of talking about stuff. And yeah, um, then I did some videos. Uh, this is your brain on lockdown, which is basically looks exactly like this. I'm just wearing a different shirt each time. i just i filmed it right here, and uh, just explaining to people like what's going on during, you know, why people are reacting in certain ways to the situation of lockdown, um, you know, based on what we know about uh, the underlying neuroscience. And that's, you know, that's so I did a few of those. Um, then I had to stop because my father caught COVID and then died. And that was... Um, so if I'm trying to tweet a lot now about, uh, you know, how to do a grief during lockdown and when you can't actually see any of your family. It's proven scientifically interesting, if somewhat harrowing. So, you know, I'm uh, trying to get that sort of stuff out there as well because I'm uniquely placed to talk about that. But, yeah, but I've also been keeping track. You know, I've been asked a lot about... Um, Know, how this is impacting on teenagers and how how, how they are how they should be expected to cope with it. And there have been some interesting studies, like one which shows, like you know, general reporting shows that levels of mental health have declined in almost every age group, apart from adolescents, teenagers. And it was an interesting uh, study. And it could be the fact that no, they were already kind of low, so this isn't really you know, impacting them much more. Or it could be the case that you know, because now finally they don't have uh, the traditional teenage stresses of being excluded by others, not being able to see their friends, being kept off you know the internet and stuff, and not getting enough sleep because they have to go to school and exams. So maybe just know the removal of the traditional teenage stresses is having a bit of a protective effect overall. I mean, it's still quite early days. We won't know for certain how this will pan out until, you know, perhaps a you year know, down the line we can look back and see what actually happened overall. But, yeah, so it's, it is it is it's a very interesting time from a psychological perspective and especially if you're an adolescent too. So, you know, it, it's obviously, you know, things are you know, at a time of great upheaval internally, mentally, psychologically, physically. Also, the world's going through chaos as well, and maybe that could be more stressful or it could be less, as in you know, everything feels right now because everything's sort of synced up a bit and there has been some theories along those lines. So, yeah, so there's a lot of interesting stuff happening right now.
1: It's really, I mean, it is fascinating. I think if I was told I, I had to go back 15 years and do all that again, but in this current time, I certainly wouldn't want to do it. I feel like there's so much more going on. For teenagers these days, and you know, it was hard enough to cope back when I did it. So I, I don't think I would like to do it again. But I think the other thing that you said that's really interesting is that so much of this research takes time. It's not something that you can just determine in a week or a month, like some kind of short clinical trial. These things really need to be analysed on this kind of longitudinal scale. I mean, some of the the studies that Susie's been looking at have been going on for decades and decades, and. I think that's the kind of key thing. We, we don't know how this might bite any of us on the bum in terms of mental health and the impact that it might have on that. So I suppose since we're talking about teenage mental health, in your three respective areas, and I suppose given the pandemic as well, what kind of combs do you want people to, to take from from this session? What do you want people to kind of remember or focus on or read up on? Um, let's start with you, Pete.
3: Um, so, I think one thing that I've noticed uh, a lot through through the pandemic is that people are worried about, especially if you've got um, kids of an age who are at school. Um, how you balance that uh, sort of need to 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 work from home uh, with um, caring responsibilities and schooling responsibilities and and um, I get it right. you know, some people just go, ah, you know, just go and play if you want to play video games, go and play video games. if you want to watch Netflix, that's fine. And there are lots of worries about you know, am I being a good enough parent if I do that? If what you're doing is working for you, then it's it's fine. Um, don't beat yourself up. This is not a normal situation. And it's fine, actually, if kids want to play video games for a bit, it's not going to ruin them. Um, if you are worried about it, one of the best things that you can do is just have open and kind of collaborative conversations, particularly with teenagers. So there's some research from a couple of years ago that suggests that, you know, if you're trying to impose rules around tech use um, in the in the home, um, if you take a very authoritarian approach, say, look, you're only allowed an hour a day at this time, it's not going to work. The teens will rebel. Um, but perhaps most worryingly, they'll hide their tech use from you. And that's, that's the situation that you don't want to be in, is when they're doing stuff on the internet and you don't know when they're on it and what they're doing. Um, if you take a more kind of open and collaborative approach and say, look, I would, you know, sit down, treat them as an equal, um, this is how I feel about the situation, this is what I'd like you to do, how do you feel about it? They will still rebel against you because they're teens and that's what they do. Um, but they're much less likely to hide their tech use. Um, and that's a really good thing take an active interest in the sorts of games they're playing um i get this quite a lot in terms of you know if you if you don't play video games but your kids do how do you navigate that area there's tons of resources out there um that give parents advice on what games are age appropriate things like that but treat it like you would with movies you know if you've got a 14 year old Um, would you give them an 18-rated movie? Probably not. There are 18-rated games out there, but sometimes we don't feel as though that's the same sort of rating system um, as for movies. They're there for a reason, though. So there's lots of information about those. Make sure they're age-appropriate. Maybe read up about other sorts of games that are kind of like that 18-rated game, but rated more appropriately. So that if they say, can I play Super Death Kill Dean 57? Um, And you go, no, that's, that's not the right game for you. Um, rather than that being the end of the conversation, say, well, but how about this game um, instead? And, it, you know, it, it gives you an option then.
1: Awesome. Um, and how about you, Dean? What do you think your main take homes are? I mean, Pete's kind of talked about the, the conflict between teenager and parent or, or guardian. <clears> or <something. throat> what, what are your main take homes given the pandemic but also yeah. kind of generally... Yeah, yeah. Um, I
2: think just generally it's something like like pizza or touch. You know, the, the, it's a classic trope of you know parents and teens butting heads and you know like I hate you and slamming doors and stuff. And it's 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 a, it's a it's almost a sitcom cliche, but it's it's a real thing it happens you know it's almost inevitable because of the way humans have evolved how we work so even if you if you're a parent who's having serious trouble with your teenager or if you're a teenager who can't understand your parent it's it's normal that is going to happen because you are operating on two different systems essentially you're both your brains are in very different places and it's it's important to acknowledge that that's the thing like that 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 will happen so if you know if your relationship is less than it was it doesn't mean it's, you know, you've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that it's you know, completely irreparable. It's 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 a part of life. It'll happen. It keeps happening, and and you know that's just that's just how brains work. And obviously, the COVID nineteen situation has uh, obviously thrown a lot of things into sharp relief, as in when parents and teens have to share the same house a lot more. It's it's going to be inevitable that you're going to annoy each other a lot more because you are you know, trapped in the same place. And that's something teenagers tend to object to anyway, because when you're in that stage of life, you need to explore more you have an instinctive drive to broaden your horizons to experience new things because that's exactly what your brain wants and needs at this particular stage of development but because of that, that's how the world works we don't allow them you know that's not normally an option So teenagers have all the, the expectations of adults and none of the rights so we expect them to you I mean the world is kind of unfair to teenagers we tell them you're not old enough to vote you're not old enough to drive you can't be trusted with a beer but you must do these exams that will define your entire life from this point forward and that seems a little inconsistent and i think the way we talk about the whole teenage thing is something which could be improved as well. Like, I mean, we haven't done as much today, but any time there's a discussion about teenagers as in as if they're not there, as if they haven't got the capacity to listen to this and read it themselves or see it. So like, a lot of people talk about teenagers as a problem as if they're like cows on the motorway. They're just like mindless things in the way which need to be shunted to one side and then we can all get on with our proper lives. They're not that. They are full-fledged individuals with needs and drives and desires of their own and it should be treated as such. And I think that's probably an important thing to remember especially during these particularly stressful and unprecedented times amazing thank you
1: thank you I kind of like that it is normal and I can imagine teenagers and parents is one thing if if adults are struggling (laughs) to (laughs) live with their their life partners then no (laughs) wonder teenagers and parents are going to be struggling as well you know that's that's absolutely fair and finally Susie can I come to you what are your main take-homes
4: yeah, I mean, to be honest, I was going to say something very, very similar to what Pete said, but about substance use rather than video games. It's exactly the same. I think lots of like parents and guardians get really nervous about having the drugs conversation with their children because, uh, firstly, I think lots of people are worried that they're going to make a fool of themselves and not know what they're talking about. But, but actually... That's fine because you don't want to you don't want to sort of say to your child well yes I know about this drug and this drug and this drug and obviously drug the the sort of drugs that are popular change over time and the ones that are popular that were popular when you were that age aren't necessarily the same ones that are around now and won't be the same ones that are around in the future but the but the key thing is to to not just have the drug talk to make it a conversation, exactly as Pete said. To listen to what your child is saying, and and respond to it, and react to it, and create an environment where um, your child feels safe to come to you to say if they are concerned about themselves or about a friend that they can talk to you about it and like creating an environment where if you don't want your your child to go off and sort of smoke behind the bike sheds then you can sort of create a home environment where they feel that they can sort of tell you about what they want to do because exactly as pete said if you create a really authoritarian environment it will just be hidden from you what what the what the the young person is doing and that's a much more sort of I mean, dangerous maybe is a bit of a strong word, but risky, Mm -hmm. risky situation to be in, particularly around these substances where when they're illicit, you run the risk of not only sort of criminal problems, but also not knowing what's in a substance means that it's much easier to take more of it than you want to, than you mean to. And I'm like, even with alcohol, we all know what what going a bit too far feels like. And it was very easy to do. And it's still very easy to do. And that's with a substance that is... meticulously regulated we know exactly how much alcohol is in a drink that we drink and yet still particularly as a teenager but I mean I'm sure some of us have done it more recently than that drink to the point of being sick or passing out or you know all sorts of things and that's with a substance that's really controlled so with substances that are illicit particularly if if someone has never tried it before as well it's so much easier to overdo it and so sort of having conversations about that kind of moderation and starting slow and building up and that kind of thing and not just saying all drugs are bad and all drugs are the same because that's not a very credible argument and it's kind of (laughs) it's very easy to disprove it and all a young person needs to do is see one of their friends sort of smoking a spliff or whatever and and saying that it's quite nice and they go oh well if that's the same if that's fine then maybe heroin is also i mean that's a facetious argument but, <laughs> but you know if, if you make if you say that all drugs are the same then that's that's where that's a leap that isn't an impossible leap to make so i think having kind of credible conversations um, and and a, and a two-way dialogue is hugely hugely important yeah
1: completely agree this sadly takes us to the, the end, end. Of our event today. So, wherever you are watching from, please can you put your hands together for our speakers Dr. Dean Burnett, Dr. Susie Gage, and Professor Pete Etchels. Thank you all for joining us today. If you do have any questions, please tweet Cosmic Shambles or any of our guests. You can find links to all of our panelists' blogs, websites, and books in the description below don't forget to subscribe to cosmic shambles youtube channel so you don't miss out on any of the awesome upcoming live streams remember genetics shambles is on tomorrow night live and every sunday at 3 p.m robin ince and helen chesky host a live science q a uh, which this week they'll be joined by dr tana joseph from jodrell bank and other special guests if you are able to support please go to patreon.com forward slash forward slash cosmic shambles to sign up and get access to all those lovely extras and all that's left for me to say is look after yourselves stay safe and we'll see you again soon take care bye
0: thank you very much for listening support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles check out all the other stuff over at cosmic follow us on twitter at cosmic shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now.